Hello, everybody. Today we are with Alon Avats. Alon is a, a serial entrepreneur, the one of the co-founders of Insights that's been uh, acquired by Rapid7 last week, um, an angel investor, and he does lots of more things that, you know, hopefully he'll tell us about today. Hello, Alon. How are you? Great, Gilad, Simon. Thank you for hosting me. By the way, it was purchased last year. So it's already over a year by now. And thank you so much for the introductions and let's get going. Awesome, thanks Alon. So it's been, it's been a while, right? Yeah, more than a year ago, you say? So how was this year for you? Um, great year, very educating. You know, for me, it's the first time that I work for an American global corporate. And it's very, very different from my uh, startup experience. And it's different in a good way because a lot of the things that happen in corporate are things that I've never been exposed to, like processes, like how they make decisions, how they think of scale. And for me, it was an amazing opportunity to learn about building companies in a different way. And also, you know, one day when I'll build my next company and I would like to scale it as well. So I know a lot better how to do that. Does that mean that Insights was not, um, say, established with processes, but rather something like the Cinderella stories, like Google in, a, in the garage or the back office of somewhere, one table, one computer, and a bunch of uh, smart guys? Uh, so not exactly. So even Insights, before the acquisition, it was over 200 employees, uh, almost 500 uh, customers. So from my perspective, it was an established company. When I was there, I felt like we have a lot of processes, like we're very mature because I was comparing it to the early days of Insights when we were 10 employees in the garage. So uh, when, when we sold Insights, I was sure, yeah, we're very mature with processes. We, we scaled the company. And we already have a culture of a big company. But when I reached Rapid7, it wasn't 200 employees, but 2,000 employees. I realized that in that scale, you need different things. So it was, like I said, a very educating experience for me uh, to understand that there is you know, a lot more to it. And an organization is like an, an like organic creature that is ever evolving and you always need to adapt and take it to the next level. That's, that's very interesting. And your earlier comment is also interesting about the differences in, in decision-making strategy, uh, scaling between Israeli and, and, and US companies. It's, it's a bit surprising almost to me because there's so many business ties between both countries and so many Israelis that, that make the move to the US. So my assumption was that it was actually pretty similar in, in, in the way they thought about growing businesses. But what was the most striking thing um, that can come to your mind? Yeah, so I learned a lot. I can tell you that one of the things that stood out the most is how much Rapid7 invests in alignment. So when you have 2,000 employees and they're spread across the globe and you know the offices in different locations are relatively independent, so you need to you know, lead by context, give everyone the context and make sure that everyone is aligned around the same strategy. So I can tell you that one 
um, like I was surprised how much Rapid7 management is investing in explaining what they do and all the decision-making process behind their strategy and what shift they want to take. Things that are really, really important to keep everyone aligned and to keep everyone aware and understanding of the path the company is taking. And also when they do make decision, even on like um, uh, lower levels of the organization. So the process includes a lot of discussions with all the stakeholders to get everyone aligned. So there is a very you know, clear understanding of the importance of alignment and that creates a different culture. It also creates a culture that you have to be very cooperative because if people are across the globe and you need to allow people to you know, take initiatives and push ahead new initiatives. So you have to be very cooperative and, and help them you know, be able to make these moves because otherwise the organization would be stuck. So it's really important, you know, culture and create this alignment. It's so interesting, Alon, because, you know, when you try to make an alignment and, you know, in, in scale, like in a big corporate, it's much harder, of course, than when you are still a small startup, you're all in the same open space. I can just uh, turn my... Uh, turn my chair and, and speak to the head of R&D or product manager and tell them, you know, what's what's the plan and, you know, just code based on that. You don't, than... even, Gilad, you don't even need to talk to them. They hear everything. You sit in the same exactly. office. Exactly. You, you can talk hide. to your co-founder and all the R&D is aware of what's going on. You know, it's exactly. a... <laughs> you know it, it happened in one day, right? It, the acquisition, of course, it took time and, you know, processes, a, a whole procedure, I guess. But then suddenly it happens and you need to, what, change mindset or start exploring how things are working now or how, how is it like and where is the challenge? Yeah, I think the first thing is really to open yourself to, to learning and understand that now it's a different organization. So again, an organization is a live you know, or organ that's, that's different from one place to another. So you need to be open to learn how things work in the new organization and pave your way, you know, within the current structure. So I think it's really about learning, talking to people a lot, asking them, you know, how it's being done in Rapid7, for example, how should I lead a new initiative or lead a change? And once you open to, to learn the organization, you then have the ability to create change, to lead new initiatives, and eventually be successful in that organization. One, one of the key things I noticed when I joined a, a, a very large corporation years ago, US-based, the emphasis on recruiting people based on um, their, their behavior, but also their ability to communicate efficiently. You know, the bigger, the bigger the hive, the more critical it becomes. And there is less emphasis on, on skills and competencies. You need to have those, of course. But if you're incapable of synthesizing, communicating efficiently, hearing other people, translating that to other levels, then the whole thing cannot function. Now, there, there are technologies and tools to align across layers and layers of decision making. But ultimately, the, the, the skills uh, your employees need to have are a bit different than, than they are in a startup. Yeah, uh, totally, totally. And communicating is important. And in generally, Alignment is important. By the way, after the acquisition last year, 
I started doing angel investing. And one of my first investment was in a startup called uh, Alignment Labs. They deal with creating alignment within the organization. So understanding what all the employees in the organization understand as to the company's strategy and where things are going and where the company now needs to focus. And it gives you a map of who in the organization is, is understand the strategy and really follow you to the right direction. And based on that, you can lead by data, right? You can lead the organization, create the alignment based on actual data of what your employees understand. So for me, it was one of the most painful things at Insights, like creating this alignment and communicating efficiently, effectively. And when I went to Rapid7, I realized how much it, it becomes even more important when you scale your company even further. So for me, when I had the opportunity to, you know, with the right team and a solution that actually solved one of my biggest pains in the last five years, you know, I definitely went for it. How did you get where you are nowadays? If we speak about your, your career path a bit. Yeah. So first of all, whenever I tell my story, I always say that it starts from childhood um, and, you know, growing up in a place where your dad works in high tech and being in a high tech environment obviously influenced me and, and pushed me to tech entrepreneurship. Uh, but more specifically about insights and my entrepreneurship uh, there, I think that it definitely started in 8200 when I started to be exposed to cyber, cybersecurity, and also to the offensive side of cyber, where I led different types of cyber offensive operations and where I, get, I got my you know, cyber and cybersecurity uh, education and knowledge. So it all, uh, it all started there. And also from co-founder perspective, so one of my co-founders at Insights, Gal, he actually, you know, worked with me in the IDF in 8200, and we did together all type of uh, operations. So my basic knowledge in cybersecurity and my co-founders is from 8200, and this is where it all started. I can tell you that when I left 8200, it was very clear to me that I want to be an entrepreneur. So I had this internal motivation to be an entrepreneur. I don't know where it exactly come from, probably from childhood, but it was just there. And, and when I started you know, thinking about uh, entrepreneurship, so going to cybersecurity was in many ways my go-to because of my prior knowledge. And the first thing that uh, I did was uh, founding a cybersecurity training courses, workshops company for teenagers. So together with Guy, who was together with me in university, we both studied law and accounting, which has nothing to do with cybersecurity, but we both had cyber backgrounds from our military service. We decided to go and build this company. Amazing experience. My first business experience. This is my MBA in many ways. And we scaled it to almost a hundred projects a year with training, workshops. We didn't even we didn't even did a summer camp for teenagers where we gave that's cool. Was and, it in Israel? Yeah, it was in Israel in Cyber Gym. So we actually nice. taught them how to do security and then we simulated an attack and they had to defend the organization and identify where it comes from. That's and cool. it was did they awesome. succeed? 
Yeah, uh, yes, but it was like awesome. kids screaming, my computer is down, <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> Sounds like a, a board tabletop exercise. <laughs> Everybody's screaming. I just, I just tried to imagine how it looks from, from looking at, you know, being uh, like a fly on the wall, whether it's like a scout's uh, camp or something really, really dorky. Yeah, um, no, it was pretty <laughs> dorky, like, like pretty geeky in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. but it was, it was hilarious and a lot of fun and and you really see how kids are being exposed to cyber and get excited about that so i, I really felt like you know we're also building the next generation of the cyber experts um so this is how it started uh, two years later we sold a cyber school and and found insights me guy who uh, opened the cyber school with me and gal and my, my, my guy from 8200. And we started rolling that idea. Uh, originally, it was Guy's idea. He was there consulting a bit to financial organization in Israel. And he identified the gap in getting intelligence. It was done manually, never on time, very hard to manage all the intelligence data and take action. And the idea was to really create a platform that would surface threats to your organization from across the clear, deep, and dark web, and also help you remediate the threats. So help you with taking down phishing websites and phishing domains and fake mobile applications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A guy came from the security uh, background where he did consulting and in the IDF he did security. I came with a very strong intelligence background about intelligence methodologies and how to understand the attacker, et cetera, et cetera. And Gal was our tech guy, leading engineering and, and a cyber expert. So he really helped us you know, shape the product and also build the right technology with the right AI and the right infrastructure to deliver it automatically. So that is how we came together. We started working in insights. And like I said, we, we built it, health roller coaster, amazing school for building companies and building tech companies until we saw it last year to Rapid7. Would you, would you do anything different with, uh, with you know, your path until now? And secondly, about insight specifically, you know, we, we do know it's a very competitive market without mentioning any names. So how did you stand out to succeed there? From my personal path, I, I don't think I would have done anything different. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with my decision, at, at least the big ones. So in the smaller ones, I have a lot of bad decisions that I made along, along the way, but I see it as part of like learning. Like you can't live life without facing a failure, without you know doing bad decisions. And for me, that's part of life and part of how you do things. I know that on my next startup, I will do things, for example, differently in many ways, but from the big decisions in my life of where to go next and to found this company or something different, I'm very, very happy with my big decision, who to get married as well. Also very successful. That's decision. important. That's important. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so I'm pretty happy with my path, uh, specifically on insights and differentiation. So it's very interesting because like you said, it's a competitive uh, space. So differentiation is ever evolving. So when we started Insights, the story of providing holistic solution that covered the clear, deep and dark web 
was a huge differentiation for us because back then you had companies that do dark web monitoring, companies do social media monitoring. The fact that we yeah. came with a holistic solution to give you this visibility across the board was very special. We came to customers and we replaced sometimes one, two, three different uh, vendors. Uh, but then our competition closed the gap. And then we started to differentiate ourselves through the remediation capabilities saying, hey, we don't only give you visibility to the threats out there, we also help you remediate the threat with taking down a fake uh, phishing sites and fake social media profiles and fake uh, mobile applications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then it wasn't enough. And we started integrating with your security devices to, to do the remediation by blocking the attacks proactively. And if we identified leaked credentials, we would automatically reset these credentials against your Active Directory. So mm -hmm. it was an ever evolving. And I can tell you that uh, in the past two years or so, we started shifting into leveraging intelligence for risk management. So security in general is moving towards risk management instead of blocking every attack because that's impossible. You need to focus on the big pillars, understand where are the biggest risks and focus there. And we really, invest in the last year on doing prioritization of a risk factors driven by intelligence. So help organization understand which vulnerabilities or which third-party vendors impose the highest risk to your organization. I have a question about, um, you know, you said before competitors closing the gap and so on. Now, being both you and I, both Israelis, um, you know, be, being very candid here, we are, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, the, the stigma, let's say, we are doing great uh, improvision, right? We know to improvise and we know to invent new stuff. We, we have good uh, reputation there. But sometimes, and you can see it, for example, on our roads uh, with the traffic jams, we don't know how to strategize very well, or at least we know to strategize on paper, then we're a bit less efficient when it comes to execute yeah. uh, because of many reasons. Now, when you say you, you, you manage to close the gaps, as an Israeli startup, uh, an Israeli startup has a great story and reputation. So, you know, you're not under a threat here. Um, we all know the story. Um, how much can you really strategize for the long term and understand, and understand where the cybersecurity lacks something and plan stuff versus how much you need to improvise say oh okay they they already have this feature we need something else so we need this feature as well so if you can like kind of draw the line there if possible no for, for sure so first of all it's it's very hard uh, to draw the line so it it's obviously requires a lot of uh, good intuition uh, but i think that the key to success especially when you build a company from scratch is you know being able to identify in each step of the way what is the right thing for your business because when you start the company you really need to show that there is business there is value there is need you need to be a lot more flexible to onboard your first customers so in this phase of the company you need like to understand where you're going like you cannot take like let someone take you to you're doing threat intelligence, let him take you to endpoint security, right? That's, yeah. that's definitely not. You need some level of vision, but you can be a lot more flexible. As you grow the company, 
and you have a big customer base and the impact of every new customer is getting lower and you need to look at scale and, and bringing lending big deals and many deals. So this is where there is more need for strategizing. Mm-hmm. I think the key is to understand in every phase of the company, what is the blend that is needed? Understand where there is a need for a change. Hey, listen, from now on, if it's not a deal of over a million dollars, we're not doing something that would require three months yeah. of engineering. Okay, yeah. unless it, unless it helps our entire customer base, right? That's yeah. something different. At least yeah. aligns with our strategy. Um, so you have to understand when something changes, and when it happens, you need to say, "Hey, things changed. The balance needs to be different. Communicate it properly to the entire organization, so product, engineering, sales, marketing will all be aware, and then continue with the new strategy." So that's my biggest tip. By the way. You talked about uh, Israelis and that we're very good with improvising, less on uh, strategizing. Uh, maybe some would say that we're not as good with a uh, go-to-market, but I have to change it. Like in the last five years or so, it has changed dramatically. So in the past, it was true. Israelis were building great products, but they found it very hard you know, to scale and, and do the right strategy to get to scale. And as a result, a lot of the startups uh, have been sold pretty early before they got to large uh, scale, but that's now changing. So um, or, first of all, Insights got to $30 million in AR, and you see companies that already reached $100 million in AR. So things uh, are changing. And I, I can tell you, uh, by the way, uh, I started writing a book that's going to be published by the end of the year about the secret sauce of the Israeli cyber industry that is obviously leading the world in cybersecurity in many ways. And one of the conclusions is that the profile of entrepreneurs in changing, you see a lot more second timers, Mm -hmm. a lot more entrepreneurs, the dream not of a quick exit or making money, but Mm -hmm. actually building big companies and making a huge impact. These entrepreneurs also have a lot of compounded um, experience and they're now able to build world-class cybersecurity companies that can scale. And a good example is WIST, who reached from million to $100 million, yeah. the fastest in the history in the world. And that is, my Israeli, <laughs> that is an Israeli cybersecurity company. Yes. Things are definitely changing. Road mapping probably the hardest things to to balance as your company scales is how much proactivity in your vision uh, uh, is good versus how much reactivity to to the demands of the market. And sure, you're not going to completely change the nature of your business, but how much much of this decision-making is is data-driven and how much of it eventually is just gut feeling? You know, do you, how do you balance telling the market what they need and completing your vision until everybody gets it. You know, I think it was uh, Henry Ford who said that if he asked customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. They would have never thought of a car. So, yeah. uh, how, and, and how much of it is, is reactive, you know, reacting to your competitors, reacting to the demands of the customers. I mean, was there ever in your growth of the company really a, a, a thorough process or a system to, to make those calls? Yeah. 
So first of all, there was. I think the basic thing about this uh, Ford uh, famous quote, I have a real problem with this quote. Many people take it to a place where they say, okay, you need a vision that is disconnected from your customers. And I think that is a very, very bad practice. I think that innovation should be derived from the customers. Now, you don't need to ask your customers, hey, what is the solution that you want to see? But you have to drive the innovation from understanding what are the problems and challenges they're facing. And I think this is a very important uh, thing that you know you need to distinct. So understanding problems and challenges, that is the main driver from my perspective for innovation and bringing new things to the market. Uh, almost all innovation, not all of it, but almost all innovation comes from understanding real pains and problems of people. And I think that innovation should be derived from there. Now, when you talk about making the decisions, so I think there is a first step of gathering the data that you can you can uh, gather. You cannot you know, get to answers, but you can collect the data. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you need your own view and intuition. So for example, at Insights, uh, we had competitive analysis that uh, we had in place to understand what competition is doing. We had customer interactions and we even had a twice a year customer advisory board where we took all the customers for an offsite and really listened to their pains, to their challenges and sharing with them our plans and see what they advise us uh, to do. Um, and there was also like, you know, what we thought can be a good impact. And by the way, Gilad was part of our customer advisory board. Uh, so he knows what I'm talking about. Um, so uh, basically after you collect all this data, right? You need to form your vision based on intuition when like, you know, the legs for your strategy is the data and, and the body is what you, you conclude and bring to the table based on that. And from there, you need to have a, a strategy a vision strategy also means what you don't want to uh, uh, deal with and based on that you need to move ahead and it should be very aligned with your company dna i think this is something very important so there is a very high risk to go after your competition chase it and this will lose your dna i can tell you for example that at the insights our dna was to provide a simple solution very easy onboarding very easy remediation and this way help customers see ROI very fast while other solutions gave you maybe more granularity but it was very hard to derive value and required very long onboarding now when we try to imitate them it creates the feeling that we're not here we're not there right we don't have a character we don't have a certain customer profile that we're aiming for and then we weren't good here weren't good there once we understood that, we shifted back to our original DNA of building something very simple, very fast ROI, and then we started seeing an, a lot better results. So you also have to look at the future, have a strategy and vision, but you also need to be connected to your DNA as a company. Clarity is important to retain clients, but also talent. I think if you constantly change the DNA, you lose your best elements. So. Uh... Curious about something. You're you're an angel investor, and I would say a professional investor. You've not just invested in one company. You do this systematically, and 
you're in quite a unique position as a as an investor because you you you've been on both sides. I would say you've been an entrepreneur. You've been raising money. You've also raised money. Uh, uh, you've also scaled the business. Uh, you have a strong technical understanding. You're you know many things about this industry, and you know they always say invest in what you know. But given that you know many facets of it, I mean it, it's it's difficult to prioritize. You know what to look for in a company to invest at that stage. So I'd be curious to understand your, um, you know, your approach to angel investing and, and, you know, your focus early on. Yeah, it's a very good question because the motivations of angel investors really vary from one investor to another. So, for example, you know, many people want to uh, invest in their space more than in other spaces because this is where they can get a lot of added value. But for me personally, I came with a few motivations and things that were important for me. One for me, angel investing is an educating experience. I was curious about other spaces other than uh, cybersecurity. So I was open to things in health tech. And I told you I invest in a company that creates alignment within the organization. So I was very open to other spaces, other industries. And um, then I was also, it was also important for me to give my knowledge to help young entrepreneurs and support them and share my experience. And this is why if you look at my portfolio, you can see that it's very, uh, like there is a variety of industries, a variety of different types of uh, startups. And for me, it was mainly about learning new things, get open to new technologies, uh, other people. And also helping where I can to young entrepreneurs. I know that you're quite interested in, in the history of cyber operations in, in Israel. And I was wondering if you wanted to share a yeah. bit about, you know, your thoughts or uh, share that history that I don't think is commonly known and should interest a lot of people as uh, Israel leads the way um, in that space. Uh, yeah. So when I, we sold Intas to Rapid7, so I always had a dream to write a book. I guess as long as I was an entrepreneur, I didn't have uh, much time. And when we saw the community of Rapid7, I had some times in my evenings that uh, I, sh I didn't have to dedicate to work. So for me, it was an opportunity to do something different. And like I said, I always had a dream to write a book. Uh, when I thought about what I want to write, uh, you know, it came to me that I really want to understand and analyze why Israel cybersecurity ecosystem is so successful. I also have to say that I was very grateful to Israel cyber ecosystem. And I can definitely say that a lot of the success we had with Insights was due to the ecosystem built here, the angel investors, the compounded experience that you have here, the cyber expertise, the people who are very, very tech savvy, the connections and networks that you have globally for Israelis. So our success was a lot due to the Israeli ecosystem. And I was really intrigued to understand what brought us here. So I started investigating. I, I interviewed like over 40 entrepreneurs here in Israel, uh, all the, the most famous cybersecurity entrepreneurs. And one, one of the fun facts is that, you know, many people, it's well known that Israel's cybersecurity industry relies very much on the IDF and the military service that deal with cybersecurity operations, mostly on the offensive side of cybersecurity. Um, but 
many people doesn't know how it started. And actually, uh, the cybersecurity or, or cyber operations in the IDF didn't start from collecting intelligence, which is what most people think, but actually started from thinking about how we can leverage the cyberspace to create um, an attack, like an attack that would influence the physical world. And actually, when they started thinking about it, they wanted to do it in the beginning part of the Air Force, but it didn't work out. So they went to the intelligence. And this is how a snowball started. That what created, year was it? Uh, we're talking about 1991, 92. Wow. Okay. This is, this is when like cyber started in the IDF. Just think how visionary they, they was back then. And th this was like the early days of the internet, basically. It's crazy. And this is how it evolved into the Israel cyber intelligence uh, operations. Uh, and that's very interesting because eventually this is what led Israel to build a very solid cyber intelligence operations in the IDF that also led to very sophisticated training of cyber experts. And when they finish their military service, they go out and empower the Israeli cyber ecosystem, like the civilian cybersecurity ecosystem. The US, for example, they also have NSA, CIA. They also do cyber intelligence operations. They also have uh, cyber experts. But the big difference is that one in the NSA, you go to build your career in the NSA for the long run. While in the Israeli military, you're being recruited for four, five, six years. You get all this crazy experience and you go out to empower the Israeli cybersecurity ecosystem. So all this experience from um, the, the nation cyber intelligence operations is being you know, uh, sent afterwards to the civilian industry. And the second big difference is because Israeli has a mandatory military service. So these cyber units get to choose the brightest minds Israel has to offer. And then when they go out, so you have the brightest people of Israel uh, with cyber background. So their natural go-to is to go to the cybersecurity industry. And this is how the cyber industry, security industry in Israel is getting the best and brightest minds that Israel has to offer. And then they build an amazing cybersecurity industry. I can see the net benefit for for civil society and for the industry, but I, I'm I'm wondering, you know, isn't the 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 IDF also feeling like we're training these people, we're making them incredibly valuable, and and then they're going to the private sector? Isn't there a, a loss on their side, or is it compensated by the private sector who then works with them? How well, how do you think they feel That's about this? That's a great this? question. That's a great question. I interviewed like you know three, four past eighty two hundred commanders and face them exactly with these questions. And first of all, they really don't mind. They see it as an advantage for a few reasons. One, the ability to then go out and then in the cybersecurity industry, that's what attracts people to 8200 to begin with. So that creates motivation in teenagers to go and be the best and blend in 8200 and excel there. So they, this way they get better recruits. And two, they also come from a very, from a place where they really um, care about the Israel state. 
And they see it as like a symbiotic relationship where they're building economy and economy is building back the military. So they see it as something that is symbiotic because they look at it from the point of view of Israel as a state and not from the point of view of, I only care about 8,200 uh, for my uh, three, four years of service, 8,200, and I don't care about Israel state, so I don't care about 8,210 years ahead. They do care about these things. And this is why they're very happy that it's happening. You know, I think Simon touched upon one of the most discussed uh, issues across uh, the Israeli public, you know, how to, how to make uh, these people also stay for a long, uh, long service, longer than, you know, five, six years at the army. And of course, this is something that uh, the, the, the IDF really uh, thinks about a lot and you hear about a bunch of uh, different uh, projects to make it happen. But I think that another angle of looking at it is, is also what we're seeing in the last several years, uh, that, that people that, you know, in Israel, not specifically in other places, but rather in Israel, also other people that were not in, you know, any intelligence unit or specifically A200, they also want to join the party, which is definitely natural. They also want to uh, be part of this very successful industry. And, and you see a great trend of uh, growing uh, industry with, with also uh, a different mindset of people that, you know, were in the IDF uh, combat soldiers or, you know, or, uh, or uh, people who immigrated to Israel and so on, which is very, very nice to see. And, you know, from a social uh, point of view, I really like this trend. And I, I know Alon is also very much... Uh, interested around the social, the, the social and the public and the community. Yeah. So this is why I'm mentioning it. And I think it's a great thing to see. Uh, and, and you you also uh, care about education. You had uh, you had a startup for, for that specifically. So what do you think about that? Yeah. Like how how can we leverage more people that, that are out of the industry? So I think it's very interesting to compare the Israeli tech industry or cybersecurity industry to it's a parallel in the Silicon Valley. That's probably like um, the two biggest hubs for cybersecurity startups and very important hubs, obviously, for tech. You can see that in the Silicon Valley, the way they, they get more people and engineers to build the companies is by immigration. So a lot of people immigrate mainly from Asia to the Silicon Valley, and this is how they build company with employees to support it. In Israel, we don't have this privilege. And that is extremely limited, right? So where can we get more manpower, more engineers to support our tech industry? The answer is to bring them from a population in Israel that are underrepresented in the tech industry. For example, Arab, ultra-Orthodox Jews, and people that doesn't come from the center of Israel, from, but from the periphery of Israel, all this population are underrepresented. And I think that the key to build an established cybersecurity and tech ecosystem in the long run is to make sure that you're able to bring these populations and make them part of the uh, tech industry. This is a huge challenge. I personally also found a social initiative to help them blend in the tech industry and help them build their network in the tech industry so that it will be easier for, for them to land their first uh, job. And I think this is totally a national interest for Israel if they want to have a cybersecurity 
uh, and tech industry very successful for the long run. Alon, thank you so much for being with us today. It was very interesting. Uh, I can't wait to read your book and uh, to, to uh, have our, our uh, uh, ways crossed again in the industry. It was very, very pleasant. Thank you. Thank you very much for hosting me. It was a real pleasure. Mm-hmm.